Father, as we wake up this morning and our hearts is ringing the claim, He is risen. He is risen indeed. We're so thankful that we live in a time where your glory is displayed in such an incredible way that your mercy and your justice have met and been resolved at the cross. And that you have um, approved of what Christ has done for us in living the life that we should have lived and dying the death that we should have died. That you raised him from the dead. The judgment of death he bore for us and yet it couldn't hold him. So we live in his newness of life and we thank you that your spirit now resides in us because you have given him as a guarantee of our future inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of your glory. So Father, as we begin this next passage in Acts, would you have that mindset in our hearts as we see how that exploded in the early church and their mission to the Gentiles, to us? And we're thankful for your grace that's been shed abroad in our hearts. May we take from this section this morning is zeal to make your word known, to make the resurrection known, to preach Christ crucified, buried, and raised, and now reigning, subduing all of his enemies, putting them all under his feet until the time that he returns. We look for that day. Would you um, do that a little bit more in our hearts this morning as we continue through this passage? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, we are in Acts 11, starting in verse 19. And the first part of chapter 11, uh, what were we discussing? What do we see? What was the big deal? The long narrative of a certain event. What was it? Peter defending himself before the Jews. Peter defending himself before the Jewish church, right, right, in Jerusalem, about what? About what had happened? Ananias and all the whole, the whole associating with Gentiles. Associating with Gentiles, the conversion of a certain guy, Cornelius, and the whole Gentile Pentecost that happened there in Cornelius's house, right? And so he had gone into this house with these uncircumcised, unclean people, preached Christ to them, and then had dinner with them which was certainly not kosher food, right? And so the fun guys in the Jerusalem church, the, uh, the circumcision party, <clears throat> had argued that this was not right. They accused Peter. They put him on trial for this. And what, had, what was the response of the Jerusalem church when Peter gave his jujitsu defense? Which is... Jiu-jitsu. <laughs> <laughs> It's, you're the first person that's caught on to that. <laughs> but you never said anything. And that's, you laugh. Laughing doesn't say you get the whole import of it. Okay. He, he flips the argument on them and makes it an accusation. This is the gospel, right? There are no barriers to entry in Christ. We don't, we're not saved by externals. We're saved by the work of Christ in the heart. That's Peter's defense. God has validated this. He's, he's made it known 
that he wants us to go to the Gentiles. But look what the Holy Spirit did, bringing me and Cornelius together by falling. Even I was in mid-sentence, and the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles, and they had the same experience that we did in Acts 2. And so he's making this argument, and, and what do they say? What's the response to this? Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance. God's granted repentance to the Gentiles also. This is a move of His sovereign will over the hearts of these uncircumcised, unclean Gentiles. Christ has come. And the Spirit has moved. And so the Jerusalem church rejoices. Right? They rejoice in God's movement, not just in Jerusalem, not just in Judea, not even just in some area, but into the Gentile world. So we have here at the end of chapter 11, there's a progression of this. The church at this point was primarily Jewish. We see this um, approval from Mother Church in Jerusalem, so to speak. And chapter 11 ends with a picture of two very different churches. There's the Jerusalem church, which was led by the apostles and consisted mainly of these Aramaic-speaking Christians. Um, and this mother church recognized that God was leading them to the Gentile mission, so they encouraged it, they thanked God for it, and then they primarily continued to evangelize in Judea. They would send out people to the Gentiles, but their main focus was Jerusalem, Judea. That's where they resided. <clears throat> and yet in this section, this next section we're about to read, 19 through 30, we see that another church was established by the Hellenists that fled after Stephen was martyred. Remember that whole scene and why he was murdered by the Jews because saying that you're not God's special people. Christ is for the world. It's not going to be contained just to you. And Jews, nationalistic Jews, got a little upset by that and they stoned him. Um, so we see this other church that was established by the Hellenists, uh, Hellenistic Christians, in Antioch. They put Peter's defense at Jerusalem uh, at the forefront of their mission. They take it and run with it. It's not just a little family in, with Cornelius. It is now become the whole focus of this city, Antioch. Antioch's a very interesting place. Uh, it's the third largest city in the Roman Empire. 500,000, 800,000, kind of the estimates of the number of people there. There's a, a strong Jewish community there, 25,000 to 50,000, some of the smart guys say. Um, Antioch uh, is an old city. It was established by one of the, the generals from Alexander the Great. Remember, Alexander kind of died in early after he conquered the known world. And his four generals kind of took over, split up the empire. And um, this city was established by one of those guys and named after his dad, Antiochus. You see the, how the, the similarities there. And so it was an old city, and it was under, when it was conquered by the Romans, it was actually made to be a, what's called a free city, meaning they were pretty much self-ruled. They didn't have a lot of Roman, you know, um, oversight. They were uh, freed from a lot of the burdensome taxes that you had. Uh, it was a port city. It was very wealthy. 
Um, and it, it was basically at that time considered the gateway to the, to the east. I mean, it was a, Constantinople became that later, but here Antioch is. And so this is a great city. If you're going to set up shop and try to spread the gospel throughout the empire, this is a great place to go. I don't think they thought that through. I think they were running and hiding, and this is a free city where we can escape persecution. So, but in the providence of God, way to go, guys. So here they are. Um, it was also a very wicked city. Antioch was known for its immorality throughout the empire. In fact, a lot of the satirists of the, of the day would um, comment on the, inc the increasing immorality in Rome. Uh, they would say that, um, that the, the, the filth of the Orontes, uh, which was the river in Antioch, the filth of the Orontes uh, was flowing into the Tiber. You know, that, that's how they would talk about it. Because they basically had um, Hellenized a religion of the Assyrians, which worshipped the goddess Astarte, who, which was involved with that, that whole practice. One of the tenets of it was sacred prostitution. So if that's the holy ideal, what permission does that give people, right? So highly immoral city. Um, there's also, the, with, the, with the Jewish population that was there, they were able to carve out kind of a major um, community that was given a lot of freedom to be self-ruled. There were Jews that participated in the, in the larger city government, but, but inside the community, they were able to deal with some of the, the legal stuff on their own. So, I mean, you've got a pagan mindset. You've got um, the Jews who are there, very nationalistic, because the Hellenistic Jews had that bent. Uh, certainty of defeat, right? What are we waiting for? This is a great place. <laughs> You have a lot of opposition because of the mindset of the people, not, not just the Jews, but also the pagans. And yet, there they are in Antioch, and something happens. Let's look in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he, say, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So we remember the account of Philip after the stoning of Stephen. And, and, and Luke points us um, to another, another uh, uh, set of refugees described as those who are evangelizing the seacoast towns that are further to the north. He, he mentions uh, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Now, Phoenicia, of course, was that um, in, in a plain, and the big cities in that region were Tyre and Sidon. You may remember Jesus talking about them um, in, in the Gospels. Um, 
Also, he mentions Cyprus, which was the easternmost island in the Mediterranean, about 100 miles off the Syrian coast. But the guys who traveled the farthest north, north were those to the north. Uh, farthest north were to Antioch, and um, and and so the Greek would be the dominant language there. They began speaking the word to fellow Jews. That's natural. I'm Jewish. I want to speak to my people, right? That, that's where they go. But verse 20 gives us a contrast. What's the contrast? How many contrasts are there in verse 20? First of all, who creates it? Well, the word that, that lets us know this is the Greek word um, day. It's very deep. It has a lot of depth of meaning here. Um, and and it, it's, it, it actually means just what the English says it means, but and it creates a contrast. And so what, wh who's creating the contrast? What does it say? Not the guys in Antioch, right? Not the resident people there. Some guys from Cyprus and Cyrene, so from the island and from another town. That route was a very uh, successful commercial route between the Phoenician plain and, and the island. It was, a good, was kind of a gateway to a lot of uh, naval stuff, naval trade. And so you have um, guys who are working, making money, but who are sharing the gospel, not just with Jews. They're taking what Peter argued in Jerusalem, because they all heard about it, they, they're taking what he argued in Jerusalem and pushing it even further. They're going directly um, to the Greeks. And what's interesting, what, what strikes me about this is what they're preaching. What does he say? What, what are they preaching to these Gentiles? The Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus. Now, what did Peter preach to Jews? Do you remember how he described Christ crucified. And what is Christ? It's Greek for? Savior. Savior. The, Messiah. the Messiah. So Messiah is kind of a Jewish thing, right? There's, a, there's a, a, an understanding, a depth of understanding of, who is, of what is the Messiah. We you know, search in the scriptures to identify when he's going to come, what, what's going on there. That's a Jewish thing. Why wouldn't they be preaching the Messiah to the Gentiles? They don't know that history. They don't know the history. That's not their thing. That's not part of their culture. Oh, but Lord is. Isn't it? I mean, Lord's what you call a, a high official. And you also call some of the cultic gods Lord. So that language, they understand above me. And they're preaching the Lord Jesus. Um, all right. We'll see a major emphasis on lordship in the Greek context throughout the New Testament. That's Paul's favorite title for Jesus, Lord. Uh, Christ becomes kind of a proper name for him, almost. But Lord, that's the title that he uses a lot. Um, what questions does this kind of tactic raise? If you're all things to all people, how far does that go? How far does that go? Good. So how do we determine that? Got an answer? Holy Spirit. No <laughs> limits. No limits. Okay. Don't be a legalist. That's the main thing. Don't judge. And, and for those who don't know you, I appreciate your sarcasm. 
<laughs> there are limits to this. <laughs> you would look through the lens of scripture mm. when you like there's plenty of places in the Old Testament that call God Lord. Mm. And you're not just pulling it out of thin air. Right. You just, I don't know. You, you gotta start somewhere, so you start the place that would would where their connection is yes. and there's biblical basis for lordship mm -hmm. obviously right. you've got the old testament that speaks of god as the lord god um so yes but the emphasis is different because of the cultural background is, is, it, is there some indication that these men of cyprus and Cyrene could have been non-jews or is it I mean, or were they moving in that direction? Like, could they have been converts as the as the I, people? I didn't see that in in no. what I looked at. Okay. Um, it, that may be the case. I don't. I don't. We don't. We're not told that one or the other yeah. in scripture. I was just wondering if they if they kind of understood the culture. Yeah. Being from Cyprus and Cyprus. Well, they were probably Greek speaking. I mean, I, definitely they were Greek speaking. Uh, at least Jews. They may have been converts. Uh, I, I think the indication is that this is such a contrast that Jews would do this. That's kind of the, the feel of it. I mean, I can't say it definitely, but that seems to be the feel of the language, is that these are Jewish, Greek-speaking, Christian, Hellenistic, like Stephen and like Paul, who were doing this directly, and it was a contrast to what the, the guys in Antioch were doing. So, um, and it sets, it sets the stage for what we see in Acts 15, which is this big council that's taking place on what do we do now that we're outnumbered by these Gentile Christians? <laughs> How are we going to approach this? Um, it doesn't become an issue until you become the minority. Okay. How we become all things to all men so that some may come to Christ is not a flippant thing. Christianity is a thinking man's religion. Um, the other thing that, that's interesting here is that the trade route, that's their work. Um, the thought that came to mind on this is don't ever think that your work to put food on the table is divorced from your work in the kingdom. All life is temple work. Uh, so how does Jerusalem respond when they hear of this? What do, they, what do they say? What do they do? They must act. What do they do? Send an investigator. Who do they send? Barnabas. Barnabas. What do we know of Barnabas? Son of encouragement, he was called by whom? Who gave him that nickname? Paul. Paul. <coughs> Paul. Can I hear it? Yeah, this is, keep, keep moving. That's okay. Uh, this is before Paul. Jesus did, yes. Before Paul, uh, Barnabas was with the Jerusalem church, and the apostles gave him the name Son of Encouragement. So he's very close to the apostles. But he's a Hellenistic Jew also. He knows Greek, he knows the culture. So he's kind of a bridge guy, right? Why didn't they send one of the apostles? I mean, when Philip's doing his thing in Samaria, they sent Peter. What do you think?
he's one of them. I mean, he's uh, Hellenistic Jew, mm -hmm. and he's also very encouraging. So okay. He would help exhort them and encourage them. So by sending them, knowing his nature, there's kind of a stamp of approval on this already, right? He's going there to encourage them, to instruct them a little bit on, hey, you know, maybe clarify some things if, ne if need be. But they don't send Peter. Um, the Jerusalem church was the church of the apostles and the link to Jesus. And so what we're seeing here, I mean, some, some say this is an oversight issue, maybe. Uh, if anything, it's, it's natural for them to be interested in the entire Christian message. They, they want to know that things are being done right, that there wasn't some kind of let's pair this up with a start and let's have some weird Christian offspring, you know, uh, offshoot. Um, so they, they, they want to find out what's going on. They send Barnabas. Um, how does Luke describe Barnabas, what language does he use? He's a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. A good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Do you do you remember Luke using that language anywhere else? A good man. A good man, I'll just tell you, this one this is a little bit more obscure. A good man, Luke also uses to describe um, Joseph of Arimathea. Do you remember him? Who was he? He was a rich guy. He was on the Jewish council. He got Jesus' body from the council rather than just throwing him in the heap in Gehenna, which is what they did with um, criminals. He got his body and put him in his own tomb, a tomb that had not been used, a tomb that's very significant for today because it's empty, right? Je Joseph of Arimathea was the guy that did that, and he was a good and righteous man, Luke describes him in, in Luke 23. How else does he describe Barnabas? What else does he say? Full of the Holy Spirit. Full of the Holy Spirit um, and of faith. Who, who, do we remember anybody that he describes? I heard it. Stephen, Stephen yes. Stephen was described this way. So you have Luke ascribing to Barnabas characteristics of just a, a solid guy. You've got a martyr and a guy who, took, who risked his own life to make sure that Jesus was properly buried. Highly uh, thought of, Barnabas. So how does Barnabas respond to the work of God in Antioch? What does he do? What does he do? He exhorts them. He, what does it say? He was glad. He rejoiced. He's, he does do that. We'll get to that in a minute. That's okay. Let's, let's pace it right, Grant. Come on. Let's get... That's for next week. That's, that's not next week. No, we'll get to that today, I promise. Eventually. Um, he sees the grace of God there. There's a grace of God working among these people. Now, he could have been like the, um, like the fun guys in Jerusalem and been offended by maybe some of the particular practices they were doing, how they ate, um, whether or not they were circumcised. He could have been offended by that. But what does he do? From the heart, he's saying, this is the grace of God working here. There's a massive compassion that he has for these Gentiles that are here, such that he begins working immediately, right? How does Luke describe the work that these Cyprus and Cyrene Christians are doing in Antioch? What is he, how does he say the result? How does, what is the language he uses to describe it? 
great many people were added to the Lord. What's the reason for their success? What does it say? The hand of the Lord. The hand, the hand of the Lord was with them. What an odd way to say that. That sounds very Old Testament-y, doesn't it? I mean, we hear about the hand of the Lord working in the Old Testament. What do you think of? Judgment. Judgment. You think Exodus 9, right? Now, there are some other places in the Old Testament, Isaiah and others, where it says the hand of the Lord being gracious to the Jews to bring them back to their land. I mean, there's some mercy stuff that's referred to. But primarily when you see it, it's judgment. And yet here, it's the hand of the Lord working in mercy to the Gentiles. His power and His Spirit working through the church to, uh, to, bring, um, to bring the Gentiles to faith. Here we see God conquering His enemies through grace. Alright, look at verse 25. So Barnabas... So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. So Luke, being the great historian, compresses the time scale here. Paul's account in Galatians tells us that it was about ten years before he was pulled back into the, to the work. Paul was out Possibly doing some work on, on a, in, in a local area he was, he was in. But the Greek here used by Luke gives us the impression that it took Barnabas some doing to find Paul. That there was some searching going on. When he finally did find him, the two of them spent a year discipling a great many people. Think about that. Bunch of Gentiles, bunch of people uncircumcised, bunch of people not following Jewish law, and they are just covered up in them. Living life with them, day by day. Saul of Tarsus doing this. Luke makes a point of stating that the believers were first called Christians in Antioch. And, and most, of the, most of the smart folks will agree that this was a derogatory term used by outsiders toward Christians. Um, Christianoi or something, I think is the word. It, it has the Messiah, Christ combined with the word meaning follower of, or some have said little Christ, is, been, is kind of the derogatory thing there. But they're, they're, um, it's kind of in passing that Luke mentions it, but it's a very significant thing. It, it's only, that, that term, Christian, is only used two other times in the New Testament. Again in Acts, later in, in the book, 28 I think, and then in 1 Peter. Um, if anyone's persecuted for being a Christian, let it for doing preaching the gospel, being doing good, not for doing evil. I mean, is, is, is Peter's statement there. That's the only other time it's used. Two times in Acts, one time in 1 Peter. Yet it's a very significant thing. Why, why do you think that it's significant that they would be called Christians? Because it differentiates them from the Jews. Yes. It differentiates. This is no longer a Jewish sect. It's becoming a thing with a life of its own. It's its own identity. It's got, it comprises of Jews and Gentiles. It's becoming its own thing. Um, and what else? What else does it, does it tell us? That they would be called their own name in Antioch. They're so zealous and so passionate that it's worthy of that name. 
If they were lukewarm, nobody would bother giving them They know them, right? They stick out. They stick out. They're identified. For such a cosmopolitan city like Antioch, that has got representatives from all over the empire living there, you know, and yet here is a distinctive group that is so known that they're given the name, that Gentiles are giving other Gentiles the name, calling them derogatorily Christian. That's a big deal. This is a big work. This is a great many people <laughs> that are becoming Christian. It's not happening in a corner. Christianity was beginning to have an identity of its own within the wider world. All right, look at verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So even though the success of the gospel exploded among the Gentiles, there's still a fidelity among the churches, even Jewish churches back in Judea. One of the itinerant prophets of the early church was moved by the Spirit to warn the church of a coming famine. And Luke confirms this, and ancient documents, Egyptian texts confirm this, that there were famines within the reign of... Apparently, the guy was plagued by famines during his reign. I don't port, you know, all, all kinds of stuff, floods and drought and whatever. This is one of them, and the smart folks tend to think it was around 46 AD that this happened, uh, based on historical documents, including Acts. Um, that there was this major famine. What's the immediate response of the Christians in Antioch? Circle the wagons? Let's protect ourselves? What do they do? Send they send relief. What does that tell us? Compassionate. Okay. They're compassionate. They're unified. They're the love for each other they have different cultural mindsets. And in fact, they may be derided some by some of the, 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 the fun party guys in Jerusalem. And yet, there is a unity among the church such that they want to help their brothers in Judea because of this famine. That's not natural. Right? Do you think a, an, a, an example like this could help clarify our own vision for our own local body a little bit? Maybe how we handle our own finances a little bit? They're generous. From the heart, they're generous. They don't think of, there's a famine going on. If we give, we may not have enough at the end of the month. They're not thinking about that. There's, there's a, 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 a very organized, intentional setting aside of a contribution for their brothers in Judea, each according to his or her ability to do so. And in this, this overt, generous act, they display the unity 
of the community of Christ across cultural boundaries. To whom was the gift delivered, by the way? Who's it given to? The elders. The elders. Does that tell you something? It's like subtle. What does that tell you? Brothers. Brothers. Bad translation. Move on. Elders. What does that tell you? When we first dealt with the church in Jerusalem, who was running the charity? The apostles, right? Then something happened. We had a conflict. Carpet was red. They wanted it green. And so they got in. The, uh, the Hellenistic deacons, for lack of a better word, I, I think they were also elders, but anyway, we'll argue about that some other time. Um, they brought in Hellenistic guys to oversee charity to the Hellenistic widows, right? So you have, it seems to, it's very subtle. Here, but it seems that the church in Jerusalem is mo has moved from being uh, apostle-led to elder-led. As we see, the apostles are more and more focused on being ministers of the word throughout the region. They're trying to get the gospel out. And so the administration of church stuff is handed over to lay elders. And that's what you see here. Paul and Barnabas take this gift from the brothers in Antioch to the starving brothers in Judea and lay it at the feet, so to speak, of the lay elders at Jerusalem so that they can administer the charity out to the region. More and more responsibilities assumed by these lay elders as the apostles give themselves over more to the ministry of the word through the, throughout the region. And Paul would use this same mindset. And it's, it's, in fairness, it's kind of built off the, the elders of the synagogue mindset. But he would use this same pattern in um, establishing churches wherever he went. We'll see this later. He tells Timothy, go where you go, establish elders there to lead the people, and he gives qualifications and all of that. All right. Um, so that's the, that's the end of, of, of chapter 11. But I want to I think about this for a second. It's, it's just 10 o'clock. We've got another 30 minutes easy. In speaking the word, kidding, I know it's still April. Um, in speaking a word to these Gentiles and, and, and saying and pointing them toward the Lord Jesus, on what basis could they make that claim credible to Gentiles with no Messiah background, anything? How could they make that claim, and why would it be convincing? Yes, it's a work of the hand of the Lord, but faith is based in reason too, right? There's a credible argument that needs to be made. What's the argument? Jesus said in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples. Right, that's the, that's the emphasis behind it. But what's the argument that they can make to Gentiles that Jesus is Lord? He is risen indeed, right? The same one we use. If Christ has not raised from the dead, we are the most to be pitied, Paul says. Here's another argument for the historical validity of the resurrection. The church among an unchurched people, so to speak, exploded. If they 
had not been able to credibly argue the historical accuracy of the resurrection, all we got to do is contact the guys in Jerusalem. Oh, yeah, here's the body. It's a done deal. Christianity dies. It would have not been Christianity. It would have been asylum guys. They're hallucinating. Because <laughs> here, is, here is the body. If it's not credible, how did it explode? And these are Greek people. These are logic-oriented people. And here you have the historical evidence, again, being presented. He's Lord because the tomb is empty. And that's the argument that, that, that Paul makes, that, that Peter makes. That's where they keep going back to again and again. That's what they preach to the Gentiles. Christ crucified, Christ alive, Christ resurrected. Um, just for grins, turn to, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 19 says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come, life, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall, be, shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom, of, the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the message they preached. Christ reigning. Christ putting enemies under His feet. Through the work of His church, through the work of His Spirit, putting His enemies under His feet. So that when He returns, the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. This is a progressive uh, uh, understanding. The, 1 Corinthians was like the first letter, I think, written, right? think so. In the, in the canon, it's the first historically in-time letter written by Paul. Um, and so, even early on, this is where they're going. We're seeing the resurrection being uh, the main focus, the main argument. And if it's not true, the thing dies. If it's not true, let's go fishing. And it's, like you said, it's, it's the message that we're given today. If it, well, we could go into other reasons the resurrection is true. Um, we've talked about that before. Maybe we'll do it again. But here in this passage, we see the major, a major, a major evidence is the explosion among Greek-speaking people in Antioch and throughout the region of of the Gentile church, not Jewish, not not Messiah-oriented, but. A man was dead, and now he's alive, and he said he'd do it, and he did it. That gives him some street cred on the other stuff he said. <laughs> Here it is. Any other, any other things that strike you about this? 
Nope. Um, yes. I thought it was, I've never noticed that a prophet came and prophesied that thing. Um, I don't know, I just hadn't thought about that. I guess they were still uh, prophesying at that time, uh, famine and such. They're foretelling? Yeah. Yes. There's still some foretelling going on. Canon is not closed. Right. And it was to affirm that what they're saying is legit. So yes. Legit confirmation is always helpful. And whenever you have a guy speaking by the Holy Spirit, there's a famine coming. What's the result of that is not that they start storing in their silos, though. They don't pull a Joseph this time around. They're giving out of what they have to relieve famine in Judea. So, anything else? All right, I'll pray. Holy Spirit, would you come this morning with the word that we've just discussed and explode in our hearts a love for the lost, a love for those who are created in your image and yet still in open rebellion against the reign of your Son. God, would you give us a heart that's generous not only with our time, but with what you've blessed us with. We are a people blessed with resources. Sometimes we forget that fact. Would you help us to see needs and to have an initial thought rather than an afterthought of how can I relieve suffering of this person? How can I display concretely the mercy of Christ such that the gospel would be both displayed and preached? Father, I thank you for this group. I thank you for their heart that loves you, that wants to serve you. I pray that your spirit would move among all of us to help us to um, adorn the gospel with the good deeds that you have prepared for us before the foundation of the world. That we each have a role to play. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have that same life in us helping us to fight the residue of the fall that's in our hearts, that helps us to um, be wise and discerning in how to, how to share the gospel in all cultural contexts without compromising it. We thank you for the great gift that we have in the work of your Spirit in our hearts. We pray that He continues to um, recruit us for his role in the Godhead, which is to make much of Jesus. We're honored to be part of that. We pray that you make our efforts fruitful as we, as we work in them. 
Thank you for this day in which we set aside to remember specifically the beauties of Jesus and the resurrection and how he forged the way for our own resurrection, not to judgment, but to the, the pleasures forevermore that, it, that are at your right hand. I pray that we see the, the obstacles of this life as being not worthy of the glory that remains ahead of us because of the suffering, the death, and the resurrection and glory of Jesus. Help us to live in that reality and not be distracted by the things that seem so overwhelming in this fallen world. We want to love Him more. We want to serve Him more. We want to reflect Him more rightly than we did yesterday. So would you help us do that? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.